Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with teaching associate professor of psychology and neuroscience, Vigi Sathy. In our conversation, Professor Sathy discusses equity and inclusion in classroom instruction and how she has implemented these techniques into converting her courses online in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. To start off, uh, Vigi, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the courses you teach or are teaching this semester and, and a little bit about your research focus uh, being a uh, professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. Okay, so um, this term I'm teaching a course that I typically teach every semester, really. It's my introductory statistics course, and um, it is geared towards uh, psychology and neuroscience majors, although I do have some non-majors who take the class as part of a quantitative intensive uh, gen ed requirements. So um, I have a few slip in in, in that way, and um, they're fairly large classes. They range in size from 100 to 200 students, um, and this semester I have 130 students in that course. And then another course that I'm teaching this semester is a first-year seminar. This is my second time teaching that course, and it is a makerspace course. So students in that class use the campus makerspaces to design tools to teach quantitative concepts. And so um, that's one course that I've had some additional challenges thinking about um, translating as we move online and not just online, but in separate spaces because they work in teams. Yeah, because I, I used to, um, when I was a graduate student romance studies, we had online courses for Spanish instruction, but they would still meet once a week to one build kind of a class community and also to, to help each other study or practice like concepts that were being so yeah, that makerspace course sounds like a really difficult transition to this situation we're in now where everything's remote and people are separate. So how, how are you navigating that? Well, fortunately, we've got we put together some really great resources for faculty. And, and during that spring break, when um, you know we had some additional time after the spring break to think about transitioning, I was able to meet with um, a group of faculty related to makerspace courses. So those of us who teach makerspace courses currently or are planning to teach makerspace courses to talk about how this interruption impacts the way we do work in this course. And so um, I was able to brainstorm with other faculty to think about how do we still impart the skills that we'd like to impart in a class like this without having access to the makerspaces. And for me, the, the main thing was that students were employing design thinking, which is what this course emphasizes as design thinking and, and building these tools. And fortunately, we had gotten far enough into the semester where they began prototyping um, some of the tools. So at this point, it was really just refining the tools and thinking about other ways in which they could visualize what a final tool might look like or describe what a final tool might look like or create models of what a final tool would look like. Um, and then talk through the process of how that tool might be used and what it could do um, in terms of learning objectives for people who use the tool. So um, I, I have shifted gears um, less so towards fabrication of the object and more towards instruction about how the tool might be used with um, some form of visual, either really good sketches or some of my groups are um, creating models um, at home and then videotaping how that model works to share that. Okay. Can you give an example of one of those tools just so I can 
just for me, I, I don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> sure. Well, I have uh, five different groups in that class, and they're all working on really great ideas. One of the tools that, um, so this is the group that actually proposed yesterday, maybe making a video in place of the actual fabrication of a tool. Um, one of the concepts we talk about in an introductory statistics course is statistical power. And um, this is your ability to detect the impact of, say, an intervention, for example. And um, the, the reason this is helpful is because if you don't have a high ability in detecting an intervention's impact, then you may be setting yourself up for failure before you even begin the study. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes studies begin with what's called a power analysis to determine if you have, for example, the right sample size to be able to detect, say, a small effect, a medium effect, a large effect or impact. Um, and so one of the things that students I find in my introductory statistics course struggle with is thinking about the factors that influence power. How can they be increased? And um, I think a lot of students end up just committing a list to memory related to things that influence power, like increasing sample size um, as one of the factors that, that can increase power. And this group is thinking about a number of different factors that power can influence or can be influenced by, and they're creating a physical representation of that. For example, sample size. Having a larger sample size increases your power. And so the way they're um, envisioning this, it was a battle between, and originally in, in class they had um, these sort of boxer figures um, that, that I'm not aware of, but a, apparently it's a little toy that um, kids play with, and they're two boxer figures that fight each other in a little match um, okay. in a ring. Uh -huh. um, and so they had envisioned uh, maybe multiple boxer figures fighting a single boxer, uh, a single um, figure, and that that would represent, and, and they, would, they would rig it such that um, in the fabrication, the single one always falls over, whereas the multiple stays upright. So you, you know who the right. winner is in that battle, mm -hmm. right? Okay. And so um, now they're moving away from these figurines because they don't have access to, <laughs> to ordering these. Um, but one of my students actually happens to have some toy cars. Um, okay. And so they're looking at multiple cars versus a single car. Another factor for power is variability. So a larger variability makes power dip more difficult to detect. So they're looking at a very large car versus a motorcycle and the motorcycle symbolizes smaller variability because it's thinner. Mm -hmm. um, and so thinking about ways to like, it's an analogy for power that gives us, gives students a visual to anchor onto rather than just committing a list to memory and hoping that they, that they really remember correctly, which one needs to go up and which one needs to go down. As far as this other course you were mentioning, which is this larger course, you said you have 130 students, which I know you've done a lot of work already with inclusive teaching that's helped make these which were previously, uh, I suppose, like just more lecture-based because of the size of the students, you make these more interactive and dynamic. So can you talk a little bit about your approach to these large classes and the way your, your, your innovative approach to, to teaching these courses in a traditional, well, I guess before, before the um, pandemic and the need to stay at home and then how you've transitioned that to what you're, what you're attempting now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do a lot of work around inclusive teaching and faculty development around inclusive teaching. And the core message of inclusive teaching is thinking about um, who might be left behind by the decisions we make in designing a course and facilitating a course, um, for example, a class meeting. Um, so there are certain tools and techniques 
um, we propose that help level the playing field about participation and also recognizing um, that not all students know how to do college and, and that yeah. we should be really unhiding that curriculum for students through the way we teach our courses. Um, so uh, doing that in face-to-face -face courses is something I'm very comfortable with because I've had many years of practice with that. And um, being a student who I, I I will proudly proclaim as an introvert, um, being in a large classroom setting was not in not where a place where I would shine, and um, and I could be very engaged in my large classes, but my instructor would never know it. Um, and mm -hmm. so I really wanted to be designing courses in which I understood how every single one of my students was interacting with the material and thinking through exercises in class that allow me to gauge that. And so for me, one of the the simplest tools that I've implemented and I've been using it for about 10 years now are polling systems. So having students pull in answers in class and what that does is it gives me 100% participation um, in a question that I pose to the classroom and it allows people who don't want to speak up to share that they understand they know the answer to a question. Um, so this is a really helpful tool in my toolkit to be inclusive. And what's fortunate about this transition online is that I can continue to use a tool like that. Right. And so even when we're meeting online, I can push out a poll to students and it comes on their devices and they can answer the question. And we could leave class in a very similar way to how we would do it if we were in person. But there are some losses. And now having been a couple, you know, a week and a half into this, um, I'm, I'm realizing what gets lost as we move online and what I might yeah. need to adjust. Right. So I know a lot of talk and a lot of uh, work has been done to kind of mitigate these challenges and that it's not ideal and it's difficult. But I wanted you to speak to, you know, we have at least a full week of your you um, doing instruction. So what have been some of your best moments in this virtual classroom in the past yeah. week? Yeah. You know, honestly, I've been just surprised and relieved that so many of my students are showing up to class. Um, I have 130 students and um, the three sessions that I've led so far, I've had about 110 or 15 show up in um, the class meetings. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I've always had pretty good attendance in class only because I think it is highly interactive and, and the class time is used to practice a lot of the material that, that we're working towards and to be Fair, I also already had a lot of videos recorded. This is a flipped classroom. So um, a, much of the content delivery, I had already converted to short modules that students would watch and then they would come to class and I would start class with a quiz, seeing if they were prepared to do the work that we had mm -hmm. done. So all of that has been in place and I've, I'm glad that um, I'm not I'm not in that phase of sort of quickly recording content delivery. That's already been um, in their toolkit, but there are some aspects of this that are harder to do in um, a Zoom format than they are in person. And I think I'm very, I'm very glad they're showing up. I guess I wish that I understood a little bit more about the engagement side of things. And when you're in, in class, you can see that visually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can't see that in Zoom. And I honestly, I, um, I hope it continues because I know that as this uh, virus maintains its course if we think it will. Um, and the projections like my students and, and even me will be directly impacted by this. Um, so I know that at any point, any student or faculty member can be derailed. And so I'm trying to think through what my backups are and making sure that I'm not leaving anyone in a lurch 
um, by the decisions I'm making and how to teach this course. Uh, you mentioned it earlier in your answer, but just so others know, what is a flipped classroom or what's that approach? A flipped classroom, and this is one that is, <laughs> it's, it's widely misunderstood um, by students, by faculty, and I think the reason for the misunderstanding is that it tries to put something in a category that can be very differently implemented. Um, just like trying to classify all lecture courses as the same wouldn't that doesn't mean anything. All lecture right. courses or courses that where primary mode of instruction is this long exposition by the instructor, um, they vary in quality too. So flipped classrooms can vary in quality, but because they have this, this term, people tend to put them in a bin and think they're all the same. And so I would say for myself, when I think about the flipped classroom, it allows me to do the high structure active learning that I like to do with my students. Um, by holding them accountable for doing some preparation for class, using class time to practice some of the concepts that they came prepared to talk about, and then following that class session up with more practice work that they might do independently, for example, to reinforce the learning that we talked about in class. And each level gets more progressively difficult as we move through. So the easiest thing they will do is watch my videos before coming to class um, because they really do sort of explain basic terms, basic calculations. And then we do the harder things like application, critique, evaluation during class session and follow assignments up with that. I have one more question if that's all right. Uh, this is a question we ask most of our interviewees, but um, what is a book that changed your life? Um, the book is called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters by Priya Parker. What about that book made an impact on you? I read this book at a time when I was doing and, and still continue to do a lot of faculty development around inclusive teaching. And Priya Parker does a very good job of really taking the reader through the reasons why we have to have intentionality when we meet with people. Anytime we assemble a group of people to be thinking about what are the goals of that meeting and how do we design the meeting such that those goals are accomplished? Because I think oftentimes we go into autopilot um, creating a cocktail party, for example, mm -hmm. um, but we don't think about the fact that the cocktail party might be the avenue with which um, people who don't know each other might get to meet and talk to one another. But if you don't create opportunities or structure within that um, setting to allow for those connections to happen, you're gonna miss that opportunity. So um, I really appreciated that that lens because it's what I try to say about teaching is that we've, we've gathered in a physical space together if we're doing face-to-face -face, and what is the value added of that gathering? What can we do as a group that we couldn't have done in our silos? Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time and I enjoy the conversation. I hope you have a, have a great day. Thank you. I appreciate it. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.